back for his church yet. I mean, let's be honest. We're all like, good grief. Don't you think it would have happened by now? And we're going to actually talk about being ready for the return of Jesus and patient about the return of Jesus. And look in our passage, actually, three times in the first couple of verses, he says, verse 7, be patient, therefore, brothers, until the coming of the Lord. And then he says, uh, he talks about the farmers and how they were patient until it receives the early and late rains. And then he says, you also be patient. And then he talks about patience some more later on in the passage. And so here in this passage, over and over, God has James say, be patient, be patient. And as I was diving into this passage, God opened my eyes to something that I had never seen before. And I know it's hard to believe because I'm too young and good looking, but I've been preaching now full time for 40 years. And I've never seen what I'm about to share with you. Actually, there's a couple of things in this message that I've never noticed before. Here's the first one. Did you know that the Bible actually has given us hints all along that as much as we're to be ready for the return and expecting the return of Jesus at any moment, the Bible had given us hints that his return was going to take a little longer than most of us thought, that actually it was going to be a while? Let me give you a couple of examples. Go to 1 Peter chapter 3. 1 Peter chapter 3, look at verses 1 through 4. Sorry, 2 Peter. Did I say first? 2 Peter chapter 3. I'm sorry. 2 Peter chapter 3, verses 1 through 4. This is now the second letter that I am writing to you, beloved. In both of them, I am stirring up your sincere mind by way of reminder that you should remember the predictions of the holy prophets and the commandment of the Lord and Savior through your apostles, knowing this, first of all, that scoffers will come in the last days with scoffing, following their own sinful desires. They'll say, where is the promise of his coming? For ever since the fathers fell asleep, all things are continuing as they were from the beginning of creation. So Peter said, in the last days, there's going to be people coming saying, where's this return? Everything's going on like it always has. Where is this return? And so in order for that to happen, there would have to have been a long time before he returned. There's a little hint there. But there's more. Go back to Matthew, Jesus' own words. In Matthew 24... We'll start in verse 48. He's telling a parable about a wicked servant. In Matthew 24, verse 48, 48 says, But if that wicked servant says to himself, My master is what? By the way, if you're late for lunch, it's because you didn't answer the questions. <laughs> My master is what? Delayed. And then he begins to beat his fellow servants and so on. So in this parable, this servant is going to think that his master's delayed. Go to chapter 25. Look at verses 1 and following. The kingdom of heaven will be like ten virgins who took their lamps and went to meet the bridegroom. Five of them were foolish and five were wise. For when the foolish took their lamps, they took no oil with them. But the wise took flasks of oil with their lamps. As the bridegroom was what? Delayed. Delayed. Jump over to chapter 25, verses 14 through 19. Parable of talents, for it will be like a man going on a journey who called his servants and entrusted to them his property. To one he gave five talents, to another two, to another one, to each according to his ability. Then he went away. And he who had received the five talents went at once and traded with them, and he made five talents more. So also he who had the two talents made two talents more. But he who had received the one talent went and dug in the ground and hid his master's money. Now after a what? A long time. The master comes back to reckon. Oh, I could go on and on. The book of Hebrews says you have need of endurance. You need to hang on. It's going to be a little bit. I was teaching on this in a church in Michigan, I don't know, six, seven months ago, and 
a guy came up to me afterwards. He said, I got another example of the fact that there were hints that it would be a while. I said, what's that? He said, the Bible says in Matthew chapter 7 that wide's the path that goes to destruction and many go that way and narrows the road that leads to eternal life and few there be that find it. Yet the Bible also said that the descendants of Abraham, including the, the church and all those who had come to faith, would be more numerous than the sand on the seashore. If there's only few that are saved at a time, yet there's going to be that many people, that's going to take a while. So I want to encourage you with something. He's not... Slow, as some count slowness. Aren't you kind of glad that he waited for you? I mean, once we get saved, our attitude is, all right, Lord, I'm ready, let's go. Lord, I'm in, let's go. But aren't you, I didn't get saved till 1973. How many of you have been saved since 1973? Aren't you glad he waited until after 73? I'm glad he waited until after 73. It's hard for us to remember that, hey, his patience is he's not wanting people to perish, but those to come to repentance. Folks, I want to encourage you. The Bible said it'd be a little while. Now, at the same time, we have to ask this question. Well, then, with the, with the early, was the early church wrong, or have we been wrong being taught that we're to be ready for Jesus' return at any moment? I mean, if you read Paul's writings, he wrote like he expected the return of Jesus to happen in his lifetime. He talks about the rapture, and we who are alive will be caught up. He, act, he put himself in that group of being caught up in the rapture. He talked about we aren't all going to sleep, but we are all going to be changed. He, taught, he thought the return was going to happen in his lifetime, and he taught, it to, taught them to be ready so much that it was going to happen at any moment. That as you, We're going to look at some passages today that talk about looking for the return and watching for the return. He taught it in so intensely that there were some Christians in the early church that said, well, I don't have to go to work. I can just live off the church and be ready for the return. It's like I've heard some people say nowadays. They say, well, if Jesus is coming back at any moment, I'll just run my credit cards up and let the world pay them off. <laughs> Were we wrong? Were the early church wrong in expecting him at any moment? No. Go back to Matthew 24. Look at verse 42. Jesus again speaking, Therefore stay awake, for you do not know at what day your Lord is coming. But know this, that if the master of the house had known in what part of the night the thief was coming, he would have stayed awake and would not have let his house be broken into. Therefore you must also be ready, for the Son of Man is coming at an hour you do not expect. We're going to deal with being ready at the end of the message, but what I want to deal with right now is how we're to be patient. For those of us who are ready... We've been struggling a little bit with patience. As I travel around the country, and now for the last 18 years now, I've been traveling and speaking to churches and encouraging them all over the country. And as I deal with Christians all around, I'm hearing a lot of discouragement. I'm hearing a lot of weariness. I'm hearing a lot of depression. Because it's getting a little nuts in this world, is it not? Things are getting crazier and crazier. Even in America now, it's getting worse and worse. And Christians are getting weary and their patience is growing thin. So how do we be patient? Actually, go back to James 5. There's five things in here. Don't get scared. They're gonna, I'm going to hit them fast. But there's five things in this passage that God shows us on how to be patient. Look at the first one, verse 7. Be patient, therefore, brothers, until the coming of the Lord. See how the farmer waits for the precious fruit of the earth, being patient about it until it receives the early and the late rains. Now, I know I'm up here in the Northeast and probably on a lot of farms up here right now, but anybody here grow up on a farm? Did anybody here have any farming in your background? All right, for those of you that raised your hands, 
Let me ask you a question. Tell me if I'm right or wrong. The farmer's responsibility is to do what they're supposed to do in the prepping of the soil, the planting, the watering. But does the farmer have any control over the harvest and the timing of the harvest? No, you can't set the day of the harvest. That's up to God and how he orchestrates things. And he says, learn from the farmers. The farmers are to be faithful to do what they've been asked to do and their responsibility, but they leave the timing of the harvest to God. And that needs to be us too. Because we have a tendency in the church nowadays to try to figure out the timing of the harvest. You remember that guy that wrote, oh, a bunch of those guys that wrote all those books last few years when the blood moons and the, and the solar eclipses were all happening on feast days and everybody had it all figured out. And people have been trying to figure it out for years. I remember back in 1988, the guy wrote a book, 88 Reasons Why Christ Will Return in 88, because he took from Psalm, the book of Psalms where it says that he was angry with that generation for 40 years and 40 years is a generation than he thought, even though if you look at the Bible generation could be many different numbers of years, but he was convinced that Jesus is going to return in 88 because he had done the math. And we all try to control the timing of the harvest. We're to learn from the farmer. Just do what you've been asked to do in the generation God has you live, and you leave the timing of the harvest to God. Second thing, I told you they'd be fast. Look at the second thing. He says in verse 8, you also be patient Establish your hearts for the coming of the Lord is at hand. I'm going to talk to you about the need of encouraging each other. And we, the Bible talks about that. He, even in the book of Hebrews, when it talks about how we're to not forsake the assembling of ourselves together, but we're also to be encouraging one another. All through the Bible, the Bible talks about encouraging one another. In 1 Thessalonians 4, when he talks the rap, about the rapture, verse 18, he says, encourage each other with these words. 1 Thessalonians chapter 5, he talks about the fact that God hasn't destined us for wrath or appointed us for wrath, but to receive salvation. Then he says again, encourage each other with these words here well go with me to psalm i'm sorry not psalm isaiah go to isaiah 35 look at verses three and four strengthen the weak hands and make firm the feeble knees Say to those who have an anxious heart, be strong, fear not. Behold, your God will come with vengeance, with the recompense of God. He will come and save you. Those are some encouraging words, correct? Well, here's the problem. The Bible says we're to be encouraging each other. The problem is most of us are not encouraged ourselves. And you can't encourage somebody until you're encouraged yourself. It's like me coming down to you and saying, hey, things are going to be better. Go ahead, Remy. Ask me how I know things are going to be better. How do you know things are going to be better? I have no idea. Just hope they're going to be better. Oh, Is that an encouragement to you? That's not encouraging at all. But how do, the Bible says, listen to what he says again. You, be patient, establish your heart for the coming of the Lord is at hand. Folks, how do we do that then? How do we establish our hearts? How do we encourage ourselves? Paul, when he was writing to the Ephesian elders in Acts chapter 20, verse 28, he says, pay careful attention to yourselves and to the flock that's under your care. You can't even shepherd people unless you're taking care of yourself first. Well, how do we do it? I got good news for you. Go to Romans 15. Here's how you establish your heart. You let the word of God speak to you. In Romans chapter 15, look at verses 4 through 7. 
For whatever was written in former days was written for our instruction that through the endurance and through the encouragement of the Scriptures we might have hope. May the God, I love this, look how God's described, the God of endurance and encouragement grant you to live in such harmony with one another in accord with Christ Jesus that together you may with one voice glorify the God and the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. Therefore, welcome one another as Christ has welcomed you for the glory of God. Jump to verse 13. May the God of hope fill you with all joy and peace in believing so that by the power of the Holy Spirit you may abound in hope. How do we get encouraged ourselves? We know the Word of God and we hold on to what God has said. I love the song we sang today. Even though I don't see it, you're working. Even though I don't feel it, you're working. How do we know He's working? Because the Word of God says that He's always working. John chapter 5, Jesus said, My Father is always working to this very day. And folks, you need to be encouraged. You can't encourage each other until you know what God has said for yourself. Oh yeah, you're going to see in a little bit, you're going to be seen as, seen as stupid and ignorant. We're going to talk about that in a little bit. But for right now, let the Word of God be the, what encourages you. Know what He said. Adrian Rogers, before he died, made an amazing statement. He said, the world is getting gloriously dark. You know why he said that? Because as bad as things get, that means it's getting closer and closer to the return of Jesus because Jesus himself said it's going to get worse and worse and worse until Jesus comes. Don't fall prey to those people that say the church is going to change the world and we're going to bring in... No, no, no. It's going to get worse and worse until Jesus comes back and sets up his kingdom. We do pray for the peace of Jerusalem. But you know what? The only time Israel is going to have real peace is when Jesus comes back to this earth and sets up the kingdom in Israel. And that's what we're praying for. We pray for Jesus to come back and set up his kingdom. You establish your heart for the coming of the Lord is at hand. I love in 1 Samuel 23 how David is running from Saul and, and, and he, he's hiding in the rocks in the caves and Saul's got an army out there to kill him and Jonathan, Saul's son, David's friend, comes and finds him. And if you go back and read 1 Samuel 23, around verse 15 and following, you'll see that Jonathan comes and encourages him. He strengthens his hand in God, it says. And all Jonathan does is remind David of what God had already said. You will be the next king. You've been anointed the next king of Israel. You will be king and I'll be second in command. I'll be, I'll be next to you. I, you're going to be the king, not me. And he goes and encourages him with what God had said. And then Jonathan had to go back to the palace and David had to stay in the rocks and the caves. But what did he strengthen him with? The word of God. And if you're going to encourage me and I'm going to encourage you, we've got to be encouraged ourselves first. So we learn from the farmers. We leave the time. We do what we're supposed to do. We leave the timing of the harvest to God. Secondly, we establish our own hearts through knowing the word of God and holding fast to what he has said. Third thing in our passage in James 5. This one surprised me. This is one of those other things I'd never really noticed before. Look what he says in verse 9. Do not grumble against one another, brothers, so that you may not be judged. Behold, the judge, capital J, is standing at the door. By the way, you want to talk about being ready for him to return at any moment? We've already seen not only we're to be patient, but in this passage he said the Lord, coming of the Lord is at hand and the judge is at the door. You need to be ready at any moment. You don't know when it's going to happen. But look at what he says, though. He says, don't grumble against one another. That's interesting. And as I started to do a little study, I found something out. And I'm going to show you just a few. And I'm hard-pressed to find any 
that don't, aren't like this, but in all the places that talk about Jesus' return and are watching for his return and being ready for his return, he puts something in there. Don't quarrel. Don't fight. Don't grumble. Love each other. Didn't we read back in, in Romans 15 when we were talking about how the word of God is what's the God of endurance and encouragement? And then he said, live in harmony with one another. How come? Now let me just, before I answer, ask that question, go to 1 Peter 4. Let me just show you a couple. 1 Peter 4. I'm going to show you. It's pretty interesting. Whenever the Bible talks about looking for the return and being ready for the return of Jesus, he has to put in there, love each other, don't fight, don't quarrel, don't grumble. 1 Peter 4. Look at verses 7 through 9. The end of all things is at hand. Therefore, be self-controlled, be sober-minded for the sake of your prayers. Above all, keep loving one another earnestly, since love covers a multitude of sins. Show hospitality to one another without what? Without grumbling. Go to Titus chapter 2. We're going to start in verse 11 and read to chapter 3 verse 2. Because when, when Paul wrote this to Titus, he didn't stop with chapter 2 and start with chapter 3. This is all together. For the grace, Titus 2 verse 11. For the grace of God has appeared, bringing salvation for all people, training us to renounce ungodliness and worldly passions, and to live self-controlled, upright, and godly lives in the present age, Waiting for our blessed hope, the appearing of the glory of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ, who gave himself for us to redeem us from all lawlessness, to purify for himself a people for his own possession, who are zealous for good works. Declare these things, exhort and rebuke with all authority. Let no one disregard you. Remind them to be submissive to rulers and authorities, to be obedient, to be ready for every good work, to speak evil of no one, to avoid what? Quarreling. To be gentle and show perfect courtesy toward all people. Go to 1 Thessalonians chapter 3. Look at verses 12 and 13. And may the Lord make you increase and abound in love for one another and for all as we do for you so that he may establish your hearts blameless in holiness before our God and Father at the coming of our Lord Jesus with all his saints. How come every time he talks about being ready and watching for the return, he says, oh, and by the way, while you're being getting ready and watching for the return and looking for the return, don't fight. Love each other more. Don't fight. Don't quarrel. Don't grumble. You know why? There's lots of reasons, but one of them is this. We've already agreed things are getting a little nuts, right? Getting a little harder to live in this world as a Christian. We're becoming even more and more aliens, even though we're aliens all It's been easy to kind of blend in. It's getting harder to blend in. And as things get harder and harder, and as it gets more frustrating for us to live in this world, we have a tendency to take out our frustrations on each other. Also, a lot of us are pretty strong opinion, have pretty strong opinions on how Christians, even people in the world, ought to be living nowadays. I mean, would you not agree that COVID showed us how quickly the church could turn on each other? People fighting over masks or no masks, vaccines or no vaccines. And everybody had an opinion. I mean, nowadays you got people saying you should be stockpiling weapons. You said other people saying we should be pacifists. You should be doing this. You should be doing. I'm sure some of you right now are a little upset that I'm not wearing a coat. 
We might even disagree on the timing of Jesus' return, whether it's pre, post, mid. I'm going to share with you biblically what I believe it is. You may not agree. Don't fight with me. I ain't going to fight with you about it. The real judge is standing at the door. Fight the temptation in these days to feel like it's your job to be the Lord of everybody else around you. Live in harmony with each other, even people that might not agree with you theologically on certain things. The essentials are the essentials. Salvation by faith alone in Jesus Christ, the virgin birth, the inerrancy of the scriptures. Those are the things that separate real Christianity from not Christianity. But when it comes to the timing of the rapture or mode of baptism and all these different things, we may have very strong opinions and we should. We should know what the Word of God says and believe it in our hearts. Romans chapter 14 verse 22 talks about being fully convinced in our own mind. Yet we leave convincing other people to the Lord. In Philippians chapter 3, Paul has just gone on and said in verses 12 and following that he's forgetting what is behind and straining toward what's ahead. He then said this, he said, and those of you who are mature will think this way, and I love what he says next. He says, but if in any way you see differently, the Lord will show you. Isn't that interesting? He could have pulled his apostle card. I'm an apostle. I speak the Lord's words. Do what I say. No. He even did that with Philemon. He said, I could authority, with my authority I have, I could command you to take Onesimus back, but I would rather you do it because the Lord's doing it, not because I've commanded you. Guys, listen, ladies, listen. You have strong opinions. That's okay. They better be rooted in the scriptures. But if your brother or sister doesn't see it exactly like you do, it's not your job to convince them you're right and they're wrong. That's the Lord's job. Romans 14, verse 4. Who are you to judge the servant of another? To his own master he stands or falls, and the Lord is able to make him stand. Learn from the farmers. Do what you're supposed to do and leave the timing of the harvest to the Lord. Establish your heart, because the coming of the Lord is at hand. And don't fight with each other in the meantime. There's a fourth thing here. Look what he says in chapter 5. Verses 10 and following. As an example of suffering and patience, brothers, take the prophets who spoke in the name of the Lord. Behold, we consider those blessed who remain steadfast. You've heard of the steadfastness of Job and have seen the purpose of the Lord, how the Lord is compassionate and merciful. He says, here's the fourth thing I want you to do when you're being patient. Learn from the prophets and Job. Now, if I were to ask you to name some prophets, I'm pretty sure some of you would say, Isaiah, Jeremiah. Ezekiel, right? Pretty much we'd call those guys out. I'll be honest with you, I, I consider those some mighty men of God, some prophets. And when I get to heaven, I definitely get excited about seeing Jesus and family members that have already gone to be. But I've got to be honest with you, when I get to heaven, I'm going to go get the autograph of Isaiah, Jeremiah, and Ezekiel. I've been studying their writings for years, and I can't wait to meet them. I'm probably even going to get a selfie made with them. You know what I'm saying? But let me remind you of something. Nobody wanted their autograph when they were on the earth. They're now revered as Isaiah, Jeremiah, Ezekiel. But while they were on the earth, they were mocked, they were ridiculed, 
They were scorned. I'm not for the sake of time. I could show you passages in each of their letters where they were dealing with people saying, where is this judgment you say is coming? You say the Assyrians are coming. You say the Babylonians are coming. You say God's going to deal with it. Now everything's fine. We're going to be we're gonna doing well. There's going to be peace and security. And Isaiah, Jeremiah, and Ezekiel were not respected while they were here, but now they are. Same thing with Job. Job's friends, after being silent for a while, all turned on him. And not only did they turn on him, do you remember professional wrestling when they would have tag team matches? Where they'd be like two or three guys against one, and they'd, then they'd go tag the next guy, and the next guy come in and get him, and then they'd tag the next guy. Well, that's what they did. Those three guys all tag teamed on, on Job. By the way, in the end, who was proven to be right? Job. And God says, don't worry about whether or not you're respected in this life. Know what you believe. You hold on to it. You keep your eyes on the Lord. And don't expect the world to think you're genius. That's what's derailed some of us is we want to be accepted by our friends so much. We kind of soften on what we believe, even though the scripture is very clear. Learn from the farmers. Establish your own heart. Don't quarrel with each other. Learn from the prophets and Job. And then there's a fifth thing here. It almost seems out of place, doesn't it? Look at verse 12. But above all, my brothers, do not swear either by heaven or by earth or by any other oath, but let your yes be yes and your no be no, so that you may not fall under condemnation. Now, when I first was looking at this, I thought, Lord, this, this can't be connected I mean, we know Jesus' teaching in Matthew about, you know, let your yes be yes and your no be no, and don't swear or add to anything. That Just do what you say. But this seems out of place. It doesn't seem connected, but it is connected because James says, but above all, my brothers. In other words, tied to this other stuff, and most important, more important than all of them. Let your yes be yes and your no be no. Well, what's he saying here? There's two parts to it. One is simply this, live what you say. If you say yes, let your yes be what you live. If you say no, let your no be what you live. In other words, there's too many Christians out there that know how to talk a good game, but don't live it. You want to be patient and ready for the return of the Lord? Live what you say you believe. Let your yes be yes and your no be no. But there's also another aspect to this, and I want to encourage you with this. Remember how Jesus, when he taught on this, he said, don't swear, but let your yes be yes. In other words, don't say scout's honor or I swear in my mother's grave or whatever. In other words, whenever you feel like you have to add to your yes to make you believable, what you're saying is, I wasn't honest before, but I am being now. You feel like you have to add something to what you're saying. I'm going to encourage you. This is our yes, and this is our no. Don't feel a need to add anything to this. At the end of the book of Revelation, God says, well, he gives some warnings to those who would add to the book and some warnings to those who would take away from the book. In 1 Corinthians chapter 4, verses 5 and 6, Paul says this, I've written these things to you about Apollos and myself so that you'll know not to go beyond what is written. I know I'm up here in a part of the country where y'all are smarter than me. I know that. That's okay with me. 
I'm one of these people that I only went to school to play sports. I passed classes so I could stay on the basketball team. I don't know how electricity works. But as Vance Havner said, I'm not going to sit around in the dark until I do. I'm just going to flip the light switch on and I'm not going to worry about it. I'm okay with not being as smart as many of you all out there, but I'm going to tell you something. You smart people, you got a problem. You have to try to figure everything out for it to make sense for you to be happy. And on top of that, it's easy for you to try to use science and other things to prove your point instead of just the word of God. Is it more believable if science backs it up? It was already believable because God said it. Years ago, we heard the statement, God said it, I believe it, and that settles it. And another preacher said, no, God said it, that settles it, whether you believe it or not. <laughs> Let your yes be yes, and your no be no. Live what you say, and this is our yes, this is our no. Don't go beyond what's written. Don't get into these debates and chat rooms and try to get into theoretical arguments. You're saying that the scripture's not powerful enough by itself and it needs some more. Don't add to the word of God. Believe that it's powerful enough to do what he says. Now, as we close, we've been talking about being patient and ready. We've looked at how to be patient, but how are we to be ready? And I'm going to say something that you all hopefully understand, but maybe you don't. How you're ready is you're saved. Because when Jesus does come back, He's going to reward those who have trusted in Him and He's going to judge and punish when the judge is coming at the door. He's at the door. He's going to judge and punish those who have rejected Him. But I'm going to add something to this, not to the Scriptures. I'm going to add something from the Scriptures to you that you might not know. People do not go to hell for lying. People do not go to hell for stealing. People do not go to hell for committing adultery. Those are all sins that show that we need a Savior. That we're sinners in need of a, someone to take care of our sin problem. But the reason people go to hell, and I hope you're listening here if you're in this cap, category, in this camp, the reason people go to hell is because they do not believe in Jesus. In John chapter 3, verse 16, For God so loved the world that He gave His only Son that whoever believes in Him should not perish but have everlasting life. If you keep reading, He goes on and He said this, that God didn't come into the world to condemn the world but to save the world. And whoever believes is not condemned and whoever does not believe is condemned already because he has not believed in the name of God's only Son. In John chapter 16, verse 8, Jesus says when the Holy Spirit comes, He's going to convict the world in, in regard to sin and righteousness and judgment. And then He says this, in regard to sin, because they do not believe in Me. Folks, what sends people to hell is rejecting God's offer of salvation through faith in Jesus Christ. Yes, in the book of Revelation, as we're going to get to on Thursday night, we're going to see that at the great white throne judgment, everything they've ever done that was recorded in the books is going to be brought out, and they're going to be judged according to everything they've done. But then what does God do? He brings out the Lamb's book of life, and because their names aren't in that book, they're thrown into the lake of fire. They're not thrown into the lake of fire because of all the things recorded in the other books. That just determines the severity of their punishment but they're thrown into the lake of fire because they didn't believe in Jesus Christ in His sinless life, 
his sacrifice on our behalf, his resurrection from the dead, and that he will give eternal life to all who trust him. Guys, I want to thank you, not just you guys, but the rest of the praise team. I sat there this morning saying, I don't have to preach. The gospel has been preached in our worship time. Everything I'm talking about here today was said in our worship time. We focused on God. We glorified Him. We repeated to Him what He has said about Himself. We looked to Him and we're ready for His return. And we sang the fact that salvation is only through faith in Jesus Christ. We're about to take a meal that reminds us of His death until He what? Until He comes. My prayer is that this morning, as we take of the Lord's Supper, you are not only taking it patiently, but you're ready because you know you have trusted him and what you eat and what you drink is symbolic of the fact that you have received him as your salvation. If you're here today and you think, well, I hope I'm ready. I hope I'm saved. I've been trying to be a good person. I've been Listen, your faith has to be alone in Jesus Christ. You can't put faith in, well, I believe that Jesus died for my sins and, and, and I'm trying to be... No, no, you're putting faith in any, something besides him. If you've never trusted him as your savior today, would you come to that place where you say, Jesus, make me ready by washing my sin away through what you did on the cross, giving me this eternal life. I believe that if I come to you and believe in you, and today I do, the Bible says at that moment, God not only erases your sin, he puts his spirit within you, marking you as his and you're ready. Oh, once you join the group of us who are ready, because we've been saved already, you're going to have to wrestle with this patience thing, because once you're ready, you're ready. Right? <laughs> once we know we're saved, we're like, okay, Lord, every morning I get up and say, if you're waiting for one more vote on today or not, I'll vote. But if not, use me for your purposes. Father, as we now take the time to celebrate this meal that represents your death for us, Father, may we understand that this is a koinonia meal, a fellowship meal to remind us that you died for all of us, not just us individually, but you died for us all as we take this and we proclaim your death on our behalf until you come. We don't proclaim our good works. We don't proclaim that we're good now because we took the Lord's Supper. Lord, we proclaim your sinless life, your death on our behalf, your resurrection from the dead, and you being the one who gives eternal life to all those who believe in you. And we thank you for letting us be a part of that group. And Father, in the meantime, may we be patient as we're ready. We ask this in Jesus' name.